Hello and welcome. My name is Joe Frost, here with my co-host Peter Linus, and this is Being Human. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us again. And thank you to all those who have been in touch letting us know how you're finding uh, this second season of the Being Human podcast. Yeah, just a reminder that you can interact with us at Peter Linus or at Joe Frosty on Twitter, or you can email us at beinghuman at eauk.org. Uh, do check out the website, beinghumanproject.co.uk. We're putting more stuff on the website every week in terms of resources and articles. And don't forget, this is a three-year project that we at the EA are doing to look at some of the most challenging issues of what it means to be human in our culture today. This podcast is uh, ultimately just one strand of a much bigger project, and we would love for you to come on the journey with us. Yeah, so last time we looked at freedom, the Exodus story and the Ten Commandments, and we concluded that we don't need to put them in our front gardens, thank goodness, um, but that they are an incredible and a timeless resource as we look to live into the freedom that God has given us. And today, what we want to do in this session is to move into the promised land, to look at the book of Judges, to look at covenant, and ultimately how those signposts towards Jesus. So... If there's one thing that COVID, I think, has taught us, it's that to be human requires community. We can only function in relationships um, with other people. We've seen that with the clap. We've seen that with essential workers. We've seen that with how hard it's been to be in isolation and lockdown and limited households and support bubbles. Time and time again, we've been reminded just how crucial relationships are. But... How we navigate, govern, and structure those relationships are once again contested spaces. And so today, in this episode, we are looking then at the nature of those relationships. We're going to look at choice, at contracts, and at cancel culture. And to do that, we're going to look at the changing views in our culture around marriage um, at a recent court decision uh, on transgender issues just in passing, we're also going to look at cuts to the aid budget uh, and the impact of cancel culture. And in doing so, we're going to be looking at the impact that the postmodern story has on our lives. So not too much to cram in the next 30 minutes there. Well, I, I blame you. You talked in the first episode of this season about <laughs> reading Paul Williams' book. In fact, we both said we'd enjoyed that, Exiles on Mission. So another shout out. It's definitely worth a read. And towards the end of that book, Paul looks at the stories uh, of the West and he tries to break them down into their various acts, taking the kind of story arc. And so act one of the postmodern story, one of the stories he looks at and we're looking at, tells us that reality is something that's socially constructed by human language and actually you can't directly know it. And so therefore, because there's no knowable objective meaning, you know, nothing's objectively true, there's no higher power to govern our lives. And so the, the kind of consequence of that is that we as individuals have complete moral autonomy. We have the right to decide who we want to be and um, who we will be with in terms of relationships, how long we want to be here and to, to live even when we end our own lives. The only acceptable limit on that postmodern story is that you don't harm anybody else and that no one has the right to tell you, to coerce you into who you are to be, to force you to be anything or anyone. So 
Returning to our, our story arc framework, the idea that you have a hero, you have an objective, what the hero wants, and then you have obstacles to be overcome, uh, a crisis, a conflict, a problem. That story arc we're seeing in lots of different places. And the story arc here is that the goal is this true, authentic life. I get to live my life with complete autonomy. The problem, the crisis to be overcome, is that there is still a hang over of moral or traditional limits that seek to restrict my identity or my behaviour. So I must rid myself and society as a whole of these traditional limits on identity, on behaviour, on action. The limits are the problem. And anybody who throws off these limits or these traditional restrictions is the hero of the story. Yes, exactly. Saw a social media post recently, be the hero of your own story. It's all about me yeah. and I push everybody else and everything else away. Exactly. Okay, so breaking this down a little further then, when we look at religious frameworks like the Ten Commandments that we did last week, um, they don't just need to simply be ignored, but they need to be actively cast off. These religious stories are oppressive they become power plays. Nobody knows what's true. People are just trying to impose their opinions or their beliefs on others, and we should not trust them. The solution is to make our own identity by telling our own stories about ourselves. And since all reality is socially constructed, we can expose things that we don't like as the social constructs of others and instead tell the stories that create the reality that we want to live in and we want to manifest. Totally. And that's the world that we're living in, which results in some pretty serious deconstruction. Uh, we can experience life how we want and create whatever kind of identity then we prefer, independent of our location in space or time or even the particular physical bodies into which we have been born. Because like Instagram, it curates the life that I want to project to other people. I can build my life. I can pick the bits that I want to make public, but the rest is hidden in shame and in secrecy. And because we all know that we're doing that, another hallmark of the postmodern story becomes suspicion, doubt everything. The postmodernist is incredulous towards any overarching story. And in part, there is some truth there. Modernity thought that it had the answer for absolutely everything. Postmodernity has exposed the arrogance of some of these claims. There needs to be space to push back to deconstruct some of the claims that are being made. But when we begin to deconstruct life and language, that seriously hampers any ability to communicate. Totally. And some people are like, well, hey, hold on, what are you talking about? This all sounds a bit abstract. But without the ability to communicate, relationships are profoundly affected. We're left estranged from one another. We can't actually literally talk. What I mean and what you understand cannot be relied upon to be the same thing. And so we can't communicate. I cannot depend on our relationship. I cannot know anyone other than myself. So everything turns inward. And so relationships are reduced to kind of finite, uh, temporary things. And they're often only accepted as long as they meet my needs. So everything becomes subjective. It's all about my view, my read, my interpretation on that book, on that TV show. It's all about me. And the consequence of that is a radical and then profound sense of doubt on anything external, anything else. Nothing is ultimately knowable. There's no such thing as objective truth. 
Such truth claims are simply stories that we tell to try and make sense of our lives, or the other side of that is to control others. And there's also then no ability to reconstruct almost anything because it's such an age of deconstruction and tearing down. So looking at this postmodern tale, it, it's very tempting, but arguably too simplistic to say that this is all bad because it, it does do well in challenging, as I said, some of those arrogant claims of modernity um, that sought to resolve everything. Some deconstruction is not a bad thing. We've added aspects to our faith that are largely cultural and we shouldn't be afraid of stripping those things away. But the lack of reconstruction or when the deconstruction is taken to the extreme, it leads to a place of deep unsettling doubt where nothing is knowable. Language has no meaning and life we know is profoundly changed for the worse. Yeah, but all is not lost. <laughs> Just before you're too depressed and turn off this podcast, um, join us, we'll be back. Okay, so there's quite a lot there and quite a lot of different things that we want to discuss. But we're going to start with marriage. Ah, should I get Andy to join us so we can play a little game of Mr. and Mrs.? <laughs> I am 90% certain that would end very badly or embarrassingly, one of the two. Ah, but it would be entertaining for our listeners. <laughs> yes. Anyway, okay, so marriage is an interesting topic. Um, less people are getting married, while at the same time we are redefining who can and how we get married. People are getting married later, but interestingly, those marriages are lasting longer. Now, there is a rumour that somewhere in your history you became a marriage expert. Didn't, didn't you become a researcher in this or something? What? Why is that so surprising to everybody that I meet when I tell them that? Yes, so I used to do some work with the Relationships Foundation and I did one of the first pieces of research into the cost of family breakdown in the UK. And that figure is now over 50 billion pounds a year. And we, we put a financial value on it, mainly to get politicians' attention, actually. But there was fascinating things we found, like the average length of a marriage in the UK is actually close to 40 years in, in terms of first marriage. And most will end in death rather than divorce. So you could get the impression that's the other way around. Divorce rates are actually coming down at the moment. So they peaked at 44% for couples marrying in the 1980s. It's down to 31% today. And do we know the reason for the change? Well... So there's, there's a variety of reasons, but one of the main ones is probably there's less social pressure to marry. So those who marry have consciously decided to commit to one another today because you can enter all sorts of relationships that aren't marriages, whereas 20, 30 years ago, it was much more that was the way to form that relationship. And so we know then that those who make the decision today are entering a relationship that's more likely to mass, last because they've been more intentional about it. So basically, 20 years ago, you felt the pressure to marry and those marriages were more likely to end in divorce that is interesting. So how does that work? Why, why, why does that happen? Well, you're hitting the limits of my research. But yeah, so it's linked to an idea. Um, or really, the difference really is between sliders and deciders is how researchers have, have talked about people in these situations. So lots of people end up sliding into a relationship without actually making a decision. 
That's particularly true of men, the research found. So lots of people think that cohabitation is a great trial for marriage. It's actually not. Those who cohabit before they get married are actually more likely to separate later. Really? Yeah. It is a surprise to people. So if you look at the cohabiting stats, what you get is these little spikes at the one-year anniversary and then at subsequent anniversaries, the relationships end right on the anniversary. Why is that? Because more than half of cohabiting couples report that they slid into it rather than making a conscious decision. And so on that anniversary, one of the parties, and it is usually statistically the man, is kind of going, oh, they're forced to kind of make a decision. Am I still in for this relationship? And at that point, there's a high proportion of cohabitations end at these spikes on the anniversaries. Do you know a joint mobile phone contract is a stronger sign of commitment um, than moving in together? Joint gym membership or having a pet together is a stronger predictor of relationship strength than having a baby together. It's just like mad stuff. So only 48% of cohabiting couples are still together at their child's fifth birthday whereas 92% of married couples are. So there is like a fundamental difference between marriage and cohabitation, largely around the decision that was made to enter that relationship. It's really interesting. I remember reading a number of stories about relationships um, that have come out in the last few months, looking at relationships that started living together by accident at the start of the lockdown because they hooked up the night before or they didn't want to spend three months apart or couldn't face moving back in with their parents or whatever it was. So they wanted to give it a go. And these sort of accidental relationships are are great. They sound fun, quirky, romantic, but in none of those stories was commitment overly present in the narrative. And that is the problem. So people are entitled to form whatever relationship they want in terms of the freedom bit we're saying, but there are different types or consequences. So we're in a consumer culture in which our entry into a relationship is often all about our kind of personal choice. And the actual relationship is seen then more as a contract. We've got these agreed terms rather than a covenant commitment. And so we've seen things like the rise in prenuptial agreements, again, a more contractual way of dealing with something. If this happens, this is the consequence. Um, and then on exit, we simply cancel the contract. We draw a separation agreement or the terms of the divorce. And we've moved now as a culture to no fault divorces because nobody is at fault. It's not we don't want to attribute it. We're saying, oh, there's actually just no fault at all uh, for this relationship breaking down. Falling in love with somebody else is not your fault. It just happens. And to be authentic, to be true to yourself, you need to move on. So it's not your fault. Anything else would be to deny personal choice, your autonomy, your freedom in that moment. Uh, there's actually a case in the high court just recently with a husband claiming that his human rights had been breached when his ex-wife was able to divorce him because he worked too much and never went on holiday. And basically his claim was no fault divorces are too easy. It's a breach of his human rights how easily his spouse was able to get a divorce from him. That's fascinating. I mean... It's so interesting, this idea of relationship and commitment. Um, I mean, we've seen it re more recently on the international stage when for the last 10 years, the UK has committed to giving 0.7% of our GDP to international aid. But in November, the Chancellor announced that this commitment would no longer be met and we would be reducing our contributions to 0.5%. And actually, this move is highly popular People do not see the virtue in giving away resource when so much is needed here because of the pandemic and the economic fallout um, that has happened as a result. But once again, we see that the understanding of commitment is here as a choice. 
It is a choice that can be cancelled as soon as it ceases to be advantageous or in any way might have an adverse effect on us. Ah, commitment. I was wondering how you got from marriage to international aid so quickly there. <laughs> it's all about the relationship and the termination of relationship. Okay, so whether it's through divorces or renegotiated treaties, um, we have started um, what is like the way we redo these things in our culture. And one of the ways that that's come up again is then this notion of cancel culture where relationships are terminated because of a party's apparent betrayal of what they thought were the agreed norms in that relationship. So we're seeing cancel culture popping up. It's now even got its own name, cancel culture, but it's been around for a little while. In 2011, John Piper famously cancelled Rob Bell with his farewell Rob Bell tweet after the publication of Love Wins. Liam Neeson sparked a media frenzy in 2019 when he spoke about the ra his rage after a friend was raped by a black stranger. His confession led to outrage and forced the cancellation of the red carpet premiere for his latest film. And most recently, we've certainly seen it in J.K. Rowling's public engagement, which we've talked about before, around the trans debate that has led to many people, including Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson, distancing themselves from her. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely seen the people trying to cancel J.K. Rowling and, and she's been out again more recently talking about this issue again in light of the Kira Bell case, which is probably something we'll return to and the importance and significance culturally of that case. Uh, but, but the interesting thing about J.K. Rowling is she's basically too big to cancel. I mean, other authors were saying threatening to leave her publishing firm. People were like, yeah, you can just go. She, she's, she's too big and she's kind of basically doubled down and gone for it, which is actually really encouraging to see in many ways. Yeah, it is because so often it feels like people don't want to discuss or debate difficult issues because they don't know that they're going to be heard well. They don't know that the nuance or the meaning in their language is going to be received as they intended. So they simply just want to cancel ideas or views that they disagree with or shut the conversation down. The postmodern tale has led to us deconstructing everything, marriage, family, race, even sex and gender, because the current argument isn't even that gender is just a social construct, but that sex is as well. To be male or female is no longer a fact objectively verifiable through science or medicine. Everything our biology has become up for grabs. Which is what makes cancel culture all the more bizarre to me. If there's no absolute truth, and that's the postmodern kind of narrative, on what basis can you disagree about something? On what basis is somebody else wrong? And this leads to an entirely kind of subject of then harm narrative that's used as a basis to cancel somebody. So what we see here is the, the limitations of subjectivity when that becomes the governing narrative of any relationship, of how I relate to somebody else is all based on my terms and my understanding. It's not based on any agreement. It's not based on any understanding. And it's certainly not based on any commitment. Therefore, truth, objectivity, social norms, moral norms, all of that is up for grabs. Where do we go from here? So that was a pretty wide-ranging discussion on marriage, international aid, the deconstruction of sex, and cancel culture. And I <laughs> thought we were going to be talking about the Book of Judges and Covenant. Can you land that for us? Oh, yeah, sure. Easy. Um, so 
we're following the arc of the biblical narrative, not the arc of Noah, but the, yeah. Dad joke. <laughs> okay, I can't believe I actually just said that. Anyway, moving on swiftly. So, as we said, last episode, we were looking at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Ten Protections around what it means to be free. Um, so now the people have ended up living in the desert for 40 years. Uh, they've landed themselves in the promised land. There's been the tabernacle, God dwelling with his people. And finally, is uh, Joshua leads the Israelites into their conquest of Canaan. We have a people living in relationship with God, entering into the land. Yeah, and then as they enter the land, Joshua is not actually replaced as leader of the Israelites with a single leader. Instead, there's a period of what you might call decentralized government known as the Judges. Um, the book of Judges then traces this downward spiral for the Israelites. There's sin, there's oppression, there's distress, and then there's deliverance. And then a period of rest before the cycle begins again. And there are some great stories in the book of Judges, but the underlying refrain is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there it is. That's the line that should sound very familiar. The last line of the book says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It's very postmodern of them, in fact. <laughs> exactly. And so we tie it in because the whole story is underpinned, actually, the whole biblical story by this notion of covenant. And, and you mentioned earlier that we now have a people living in relationship with God and now a land. And these are three key aspects of the covenant God made with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave behind absolutely everything, everything he knows, and to go along on this uncertain journey to this mysterious destination. And God promises to make Abraham a great nation, to bless him, and ultimately to bless all people through him. So in Genesis 15, we have this incredible covenant story, um, this, uh, this ceremony where Abraham cuts three animals in half and arranges them to make that an aisle down the middle of these bloody carcasses, um, where, where normally the, uh, the loser in a battle would be forced to walk down and submit themselves to the victor. But it's actually God that passes through those animals uh, in the form of a smoking firepot. It means that God is saying, I'm committing to you. I, I, am, I am acknowledging the cost of this relationship. If I don't keep my promises, I will be torn limb from limb like these animals that I've just passed through. It is an incredible moment. God then confirms this covenant in Genesis 17. And the three main elements of God's promises are a personal relationship with him, the growth of the family into a nation and the promise of land. And this promise is always viewed as an extending promise. It is a blessing not only to Abraham, to his family, to his nation, but it is a blessing to all the eight nations, to the whole world. Yeah. And then again, context for this is really key. So those passages in Genesis are preceded. Genesis 11, we read about Babel, the Tower of Babel. And Babel has these two meanings. One's a gate to God. That's what they were trying to build in the tower. But the other is mixed up and confused. And so we know what happens when they tried to build the tower up to God. It was so small, there's almost like a joke. God had to come down to find their tower and see it. And then the language gets mixed up and confused. And we live in a world in which language is being deconstructed, where words are being constantly changed in meaning. I once wrote an article asking why I can't be a heterosexual gay man. 
Why can't I live in a two-story bungalow? Why can't I be a Bible-believing atheist? And in response to Babel, in this very next chapter, then God calls one man, Abraham, and he makes a covenant commitment to him. And the people of Babel wanted to make a name for themselves, but God says here, I will make your name great, Abraham. And God covenants and commits with Abraham. So we live in a world of Babel, don't we? We live in the land of judges, of consumerism, of choice, of deciding for myself who I want to be, who I want to be in relationship with. I want to make a name for myself. I will do what is right in my own eyes. If I enter into a relationship, it is often very transactional. It's essentially a contract. If you do this, I will do that. I have a set of rights. And if they're not met, if I think that I am being harmed or at risk of being harmed in any way, I am entitled to move on. In fact, uh, more than that, I'm entitled to cancel you, to stop you from harming me, based on utterly my definition of what it means to be harmed. And this is the water that we are swimming in, which makes covenant commitments like marriage stand out. Having a good, healthy marriage is a witness, actually, to our culture around us. And it's not something that only Christians could do. Please don't hear us say that. This is part of the way we are made. So we will find healthy marriages throughout our culture. But the, the commitment, the covenant commitment required is costly. And then we see with the trans debate or cancel culture, it shows the depths of the problem in the culture around us. Queer theory, which is often governing some of these conversations or some of the parameters and some of these ideas, isn't just simply trying to create space for other types of relationship. As we mentioned right at the beginning, it's queer theory that is trying to actively cast out these traditional ideas. It wants to displace marriage between one man and one woman from being seen as normal. It's more than just saying there are other types of relationship. It's actively trying to undermine the value or the goodness of a heterosexual marriage. Yeah, and so we're, we're trying to be really careful, in fact, in this podcast and in this whole project around the notion of culture wars, because it's easy to get into that kind of war mindset, everybody's out to get me. But it would be naive to think that queer theory is neutral. It's not. It is out to go after and undermine marriage. It does not want me to teach my kids that heterosexual marriage is good. Returning then to this core idea that our society doesn't have an agreed idea of what it is to be human, as we consistently say, this is seriously contested. Yes. And in a world with so much deconstruction going on, what does good formation look like? Uh, so one of the things for me is, is just to recognize how contested things are out there. And this picks up a point that we've mentioned before and that we're going to undoubtedly return to which is that it's contested for everyone. It's not just us as Christians. Everyone feels the kind of squeeze. J.K. Rowling and Liam Neeson are on the receiving end of cancel culture. But because of a, the recent ruling in the transgender case, children are actually now better protected from experimental treatment. Things are actually moving on that case. So what I want to say actually is be encouraged. Uh, we're in a really interesting cultural moment, a, a missional moment, I would say. You know, we're making friends on the trans issue with lesbians, with radical feminists, with free speech advocates. And the parents that I speak to on trans, Christians and non-Christians, 
they're nervous about the direction this is heading. They're actually really genuinely happy to have a voice that raises some of their concerns. And I think this is also true about cancel culture. When you've got somebody like Stephen Fry, who's saying he's at risk to be the next person to be cancelled, we are living in some really interesting times. So what about you? Yeah, there was a really interesting case about... um uh, the University of Cambridge stopping some guidelines coming out that said speech had to be respectful and instead saying actually re- views need to be tolerated in public discourse and speech. And it was Stephen Fry coming out and saying we need to be careful about this idea that that we can't have dissenting opinion, you can't have discussion. That's what the transgender case for children is, is about. It's about turning around and saying, hang on a second, is this wise, is this good? And listening to voices point out problems <laughs> like experimenting on our children. But that's for a different conversation. Anyway, for me, I think this is, this is an amazing opportunity to live in a life of integrity, We've talked a lot today about uh, this idea about being authentic. I've got to be true to myself. I've got to live my authentic truth. But actually, as Jesus followers, we're called to live lives of integrity, where what we say and what we do hold together in God's image that we bear. Commitment matters, even when it's costly. Relationships matter, even when we don't feel like it, even when we think we've been wronged. Compassion needs to be a hallmark of Christian relationships, not cancellation. Yeah, and that applies to us uh, as people who are both married to our marriages. Um, So uh, marriage is not, we're not saying that's the be all and the end all. But for those of us who are married, that is a huge commitment. Um, It's a decision of the will. It's a commitment that we want to invest in each other in our marriage relationship. So it's a real practical encouragement to me then about honoring and not sort of in in the negative sense of protecting the boundaries, like, how do I invest in the commitments that I have made, the time and effort that that requires? Today, as we actually record this, is my wedding anniversary. Um, so you have to honor those commitments, invest in it. <laughs> you know, but we we all make commitments, even if we're not married. You know, Jesus is single and he commits to his disciples. He's honoring the covenant commitments that he has made as God to his people, his, his commitment to us. And again, we have this very individualistic language. I choose to follow Jesus. I invite Jesus into my heart. It's like, no, he made a commitment, a covenant commitment commitment to us and he's honoring that and I think the other piece for me just is the challenge around cancel culture and I don't do my own form of that my own version and it's challenging to listen to and to engage with differing views Um, and if we think our faith can't cope with those alternatives then we we need to get a better faith you know so that's risky you know so the risks are you can just ignore the challenges and the different views But the other is to spend so much time looking at them that you kind of forget about your faith. We've got to navigate our way through those challenges. So good. So good. That's it from us for another episode of Being Human. I really hope that you liked it. Uh, Please do share. Please do tell people about us. Please do um, give us reviews and give us feedback. Let us know uh, what's working for you and what we could do differently. Until next time, take care and God bless. Be blessed.